As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everybody to a jubilant victorious edition of the total soccer show my name is taylor rockwell here with me to talk about the usa's tres acero victory over mexico in the Concacaf nations league semifinals is the king of las vegas mr las vegas himself <laughs> it's joe lowry hello joe how goes uh, your position on the floor I, I can't believe that there's anyone in the world who deserves that title less than me as king of Las Vegas. <laughs> I was walking around the other day, and I still haven't had a lot of chances to explore, but I was walking around and thinking, you know, have you ever seen those, like, little model cities, like the miniature yeah. cities? That's what walking around Las Vegas feels like. Like, it feels like you're a tiny person in, like, a miniature <laughs> little city. It's, it is absolutely bizarre. I want to explore more today. I'm hoping to have a chance to because there's, well... I, honestly, who knows what's going on with the U.S. men's national yep. team and any media manager, whatever stuff right now. We'll talk more about that later. Um, the sure floor will. is great. Thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. I, I've twisted myself up, so I have a backrest, and I think it's going very well. All right. Yeah, we talked about this on the Patreon yesterday. We we got into Joe's uh, food options, his dining options while he's been there, who he's been hanging out with, and then his recording setup, which is him sitting on the floor in sort of a ball shape. He does have a roommate. Joe, do you have a, did you put a, like a recording sock on the door? How did, how did, did. you let? I okay, did. Cool. I, it's sort of like, I just spelled out the word recording in all of my socks. It there took me like 30 minutes this morning, but I think it was worth it. You got to do what you got to do. Uh, what we have not yet talked about was your experience last night. So you hmm. go there uh, to the stadium early to the Roomba stadium uh, for Panama and Canada. <laughs> then you are still obviously in the building for the USA's game with Mexico. How big of an atmosphere change was it from the, the first Massive. game to the second game. It's okay. So big. Like I, I, my words will fail to express how different that was. Like the first game was fairly empty. I mean, I don't know how many people fit at Allegiant, the, the big old Roomba itself, maybe 65, 70,000, something along those lines. There were maybe 10 for the first game. Maybe it was a little bit more than that. I don't, I don't know. But then, I mean, it started getting packed with green and green and more green and more green to the point where you texted me, Taylor, about the percentage. Yeah. And I think I said 80-20 Mexico-US, but then realized that some of the red 
could be coming from both Canada and could Panama. Be. So it, it got loud really, really fast. The first game was quiet. Canada, I thought, had a fairly good performance. Panama looked decent for stretches. Coco Carasquilla had a really good game. But then Alfonso Davies comes off the bench, and, and that thing was over very hmm. quickly. The U.S., and I know this isn't really where anybody's head's at right now, but in terms of winning a final on Sunday, now without two starters for the U.S. men's national team, the U.S., I don't think, should be favored for that game. With everybody healthy, I think they should. Without Dest and without McKenney in the starting lineup, I, I think Canada has an edge going into that match. Not that they'll win necessarily, but I do think they have an edge. Yeah, I don't think I disagree. I'm also not sure that I care all that yep, much. And I that's the thing. That's this the thing was right the game. Now. Yeah, this was the game I wanted to win. I did not want to be in a third place game. I wanted to continue to to take the game to Mexico. And I think that was the most I've ever seen a United States team dominate Mexico from start mm. to finish. Mexico have a few chances, but only, short of the one that ends up being called back for offside when the U.S. got to turn the ball over in the second yep. half. I struggle to think of of moments when I was truly like, oh, no, this could be something. It felt like Mexico were kind of reduced to pot shots and big switches and then shots from distance. And yep. there was not much consistency to the way they were playing. Sticking with the atmosphere for a moment. Dude, like, and sometimes I don't know if the press box was behind glass. No. Uh, but it can uh, be, okay. Shoot. Actually, I do- genuinely cannot remember. That's how weird and wild last All night right. was. I don't think so. But I'm going to assume then that you could track this one. Could you hear, could you sense when the crowd started to change? Because it felt to me like after that Pulisic goal, a lot of the energy is taken out of it. You can start to hear the U.S. supporters more. And after the second goal, it sounded to me like that's when there were more whistles. There was more sort of quiet frustration. Could you hear a moment or did you start to hear sort of that energy changing? I think it was fairly gradual. Like, even before either of the goals happened in this match, Pulisic gets one in the first half, scores another one right after halftime, then Pepe finishes it off. It did get progressively um, more desperate from Mexico fans and more more irritated, and we, we heard the chant several times, and I'm guessing you and Goss talked about that plenty last night, Taylor. Uh, you not, all not those- actually, actually, we did not, because I didn't want to go off like half-cocked and not have my information in Fair. front of me. So I'd also like to hear your thoughts on that one, but we can we can time that for whenever. Yeah, and, and even before that really started happening, I think Mexico fans were incredibly frustrated. I know this isn't exactly what you asked, but they were frustrated like almost from the jump in this really? game. Diego Coca, Mexico manager... You know, said in his, his match day minus one press conference, so that would have been Wednesday, that, you know, there's more people that want him out than want him to stay, right? He, he talked about pressure, and, and that's been a, a huge discussion point around Mexico right now. The fans booed him aggressively when his name was announced. Like, the fans booed every U.S. player, and the fans cheered every Mexico player, and the fans booed Diego Coca hard before this match started. Then you get 10 minutes into the game, and Mexico aren't doing anything. They're not creating chances, none of that stuff. And they're irritated. And that led to more and more frustration that led to some of the craziness that happened later in the game. It was a, a fairly hostile Mexile, Mexican environment excuse me, from pretty early on in this game. So let's get into those opening moments or even maybe before that when we look at the lineup. I should also add, uh, I do have a sleeping dog behind me who appears to be dreaming about attacking a squirrel. So apologies if you get some weird background noises in this episode. Joe, when you saw the lineup, uh, were you surprised by anything? Because to me, it was more or less what we expected. Center back partnership was interesting to me. But Balogun up top, Pulisic on the left, way on the right, Reyna operating more centrally. Uh, In the quick take, hot take 
I said that I felt like Musa did play as a single pivot more than I expected. On the rewatch, yeah. I, I, I think that was sometimes the case. But whenever the U.S. was building out of the back, it did seem like McKinney would drop a little bit mm. deeper. I think when that changed, and a thing that I hadn't noted in the initial watch, is that I think early on, McKinney takes a more conserv- conservative position as the game progresses. And I think the U.S. realize there is a lot here for the taking. We can really take this game. That's where I felt like McKenney was more active in stepping out, and then it did feel like uh, Musa was by himself on occasion. But I, I think other than that maybe wrinkle, it, it felt to me about what we were expecting from the United States. Yeah, in terms of the personnel, it was right on, right? Like this is the exact lineup that I think, Taylor, you and I have talked about coming into this game. The one thing that was a little different was the midfield, and, and you just talked about it. And I think I agree with everything you just said. Defensively, it absolutely was just a straight up four three three with a single pivot. Like the U.S. never dropped mm-hmm. into a a four five one block. Maybe because by the time they would have wanted to, they were down yeah. two outfield players. I don't know what, <laughs> what that would have looked like. Maybe, uh, maybe it was just a four four at that point, which is a, a wild thing to witness. Um, but McKenney's role was fairly fluid. Like Musa, I think mm-hmm. had the single pivot responsibilities. But you know, like Tyler Adams, at times you see another eight come and drop into support, and McKenney did that. Fairly often early in this game, Reyna would drop into the fullback spot. Like you had a lot of fluid rotation in the midfield, and I don't remember who the U.S. player was after the game. I think it was Tim Weah that talked about how the team had worked on some of those midfield rotations coming into the game, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that they weren't going to have Tyler Adams and that, and that that was going to have to shift some things. So it, it wasn't the kind of three-two-five shape that I imagined with Reyna and Pulisic in the half spaces. It was very much like a fluid 4-3-3 that sometimes looked like a 4-2-3-1, but Reyna was never really a number 10. It was lots of those kinds of movements, but soccer is fluid and formations are fluid. And so, you know, once we were in the first few minutes of this game and it became clear that BJ Callahan had gone with basically just Musa as Adams replacement with a little help from McKenney, I think that kind of set the tone. The U.S. were going to try to control the game and Musa helps you do that at least you know, maybe a little yeah. bit more in some ways than Tyler Adams does. Uh in speaking about those midfield rotations, was he talking about when the U.S. had the ball or when the U.S. was on defense? My understanding, and it's a little unclear in the mix zone when you know, you're know you surrounded yeah, by 48 other yeah. somewhat sweaty people. My understanding <laughs> is that it was when the U.S. was in possession. You know, okay. Wea talked about it in the context of, I think it was Wea, in the context of that second goal from Pulisic where Wea bombs in behind after McKenney shifts a little wider and maybe a little deeper uh, to, to play mm-hmm. that ball in behind. I think that's the moment that he was describing, but sort of looped it into more general rotations in the midfield. Uh, because I ask because I did see good attacking rotations. I also saw the awareness from the U.S. on the defensive side of the ball be yeah. about as good as I've ever seen it, starting with uh, uh, Goss and I talked about this last night. It felt like what uh, Mexico wanted to do was in their sort of 3-4-3, three, 3-5-2, three, three, but uh, three at the back with two wingbacks. I think they were trying to bait the U.S. fullbacks into stepping out to cover those wingbacks to push further up to sit right on them, which then would have left a ton of space in behind between the fullbacks and the centerbacks that Mexico could have attacked sort of vertically. Mm. And they tried it a few times in the opening 10 minutes or so, Mexico. Like one time it almost comes off, but even there I think it ends up rolling out for a goal kick. And short of that, what I noticed was the U.S. fullbacks staying deeper and not getting baited. When the Mm -hmm. ball would go to uh, one of those wingbacks, then they would step once there was cover. And when you had one of the attackers dropping in, if it was Antuna or uh, or Berlin Pineda, uh, there wouldn't be movement from the fullbacks. They would wait for a midfielder to pick that player up. And I think, again, there was this idea for Mexico that if we can get the fullbacks to kind of bite on that or track runs when they shouldn't, then we're going to have space. And to their credit, Jedi and Dest did exactly what they needed to do. There's a few slack moments, but I think that's going to happen over the course of 90 minutes. I just I couldn't get over 
how good they were at tracking runs when they needed to, but about holding their position when they needed to. And I think that was a big part of how Mexico weren't able to create yeah. much down those flanks. And then through the middle, I noticed how often when as soon as Mexico had possession around midfield and the ball went backwards, that was seemed to be the pressing trigger. Everybody would step. And it was a credit that if it was Musa going forward, McKenney would slide in and cover whoever he needed to cover. If it was McKenney going forward, Musa would sit deep, but everybody blocked off options. And I think it really frustrated Mexico. I was struck in that first half by how often they just had to go long and kind of hope for something to come off or at the very least just get rid to alleviate pressure. Yeah, it was a really disciplined and I thought effective and sharp defensive performance from the U.S. And that was true basically from the jump in this game. The attack, I thought, took a little longer to click. You know, the U.S., I think, were in control from the jump. But really, it it took until Christian Pulisic kind of found Mm -hmm. vintage Christian Pulisic, like Christian Pulisic against Panama in World Cup qualifying for the 2018 World Cup at home in Orlando, Christian Pulisic. Like, that started to come out maybe around the 20th minute or so when he has a string of really dangerous moments. But before that had even happened, Mexico weren't dangerous. Like, and, and that applied to the whole game. Like, it, it was the Matt Turner hospital ball that then led to the offside. That was in the 76th minute to Yunus Musa. He just left Musa out to dry. Like, th- that was the most dangerous moment Mexico had. Maybe a set piece here and there. But there was, it was just nothing. Like, coming into this game, Taylor, a lot of the discussion, obviously, was that the manager stuff. And we'll, we'll get to some of that later. I know you and Goss talked about it. Like, that, that was a big discussion point. And then it became much, much bigger right around kickoff, which made for just kind of a surreal... In-person watching experience, and I'm guessing the same thing applies to a lot of folks watching at home. But like another discussion point was it's been five straight games where the U.S. is either beaten or drawn to Mexico. Like the U.S. had not lost to Mexico in five consecutive games. Now it is six, and this sixth game is probably the most lopsided U.S.-Mexico game that we've ever seen. Like Mexico had nothing in this game. The U.S. looked miles better, and I know Mexico didn't have all of their best players, and they, they didn't have them all available or in the starting lineup. The same thing can apply to the U.S. too, though, right? Like Tyler Adams isn't in this game and, and Chucky Lozano is not in there for Mexico. If we just call that an even swap, and I, I'm not even sure that's true. Like I think the U.S. maybe would value Tyler Adams a bit more than Mexico would value Lozano. Agreed. Like then at least everybody's playing with mostly the same cards. Like I, I just am still a little bit boggled. And I think that is my biggest takeaway from this game is just how dominant the U.S. looked. Like regardless of who's on the sidelines for both teams. Like the United States is so clearly a better team than Mexico right now. Not that that won't change at some point and not that the U.S. won't lose to Mexico ever again in the next cycle. Like one game things happen all the time and crazy flukes happen all the time in soccer. The margins are so thin. But man, on talent and on style and all of these things, and and you walk through the defensive stuff really well, Taylor, the U.S. just controlled everything. And then eventually they were kind of dominant. And it was it was awesome to watch. A question for you, Joe. I'm jumping around a little bit here, and then we'll take a break. Uh, A thing that I struggled with after Goss and I were done recording is if Tyler Adams is back, who sits for the United States? Because... I thought Gio Reyna was excellent. I thought he did exactly what I wanted Gio Reyna to do, including getting a little bit spicy at times, Mm. but in the appropriate way. I think he frustrated Mexico, but I think he was really good on the ball. I thought he had some good looks. I think he he took some shooting opportunities when they were on. I think he backed himself there. And so... If Adams comes back in, I thought Tim Weah was excellent. I don't want Weah sitting. Pulisic was obviously almost unplayable yeah. at times, so he's not sitting. Uh, so, like, I guess McKinney would be suspended, but uh, we don't have Adams for this one, so we won't have to worry about that one. It's probably Musa, I guess. It's between Musa and Reyna, but it's, it's, it's I guess, one of them good problems to have, basically. It, it, 
It is. And as you're talking to, I don't have an answer to your question, mm-hmm. to be clear. Like, I, I don't know. I, I would imagine it would be Gio Reyna, as good as I think he is. I think he is still someone that's a little bit without a position. And and I want to talk more about Reyna later, because I, I don't think I'm quite as high on him from this hmm. game as you are, which is like not something I expected to say. Like, this is a weird alternate reality that we're living in. I thought he had a good game, but not a great game. And we can get into maybe why that why that is later on. But cool. it is a it is a good problem to have. Uh, at least it seems that way, right? In, in terms of having a, a good player pool, you want to have depth, you want to have talent, you want to have Pepe trying to overtake Balogun, right? You want all of these things. I do wonder, like, the U.S. hasn't really been in that position before, where there is a lot of players that have a real claim to be you know, among some of the best in the world. Maybe we're not there yet for the U.S. right now, but at least you know they have a real claim for a starting role. And you can say that about everybody who started this game, plus Tyler Adams and maybe plus Ricardo Pepe, maybe plus a couple of others. How does that impact the locker room? Like, we, we're not going to know that right now, but all the talk all the time about this group is how tight the locker room is. And, and that's very much been the vibe being around the team is, you know, we all get along well. Like, everybody's got at least a pal, and, and usually there's, like, a lot more pals hanging out. Everybody likes hanging out, all that jazz. That's what everybody says. I, I'd wonder, as we get closer to 26, if any of that changes, right? If, you know, Tyler Adams or, or Musa or McKenny or Reina, whoever's not starting, gets hissy, and we've already seen that with Reina. Maybe we, we will see it with the other guys. Maybe we won't. I do kind of wonder if egos eventually start to factor in. And yeah. We're a long way away from that being warranted right now because these guys are so young and really shouldn't have crazy big egos. But that's something to watch for, not to be doom and gloom. But I am I am curious to see what happens there as talent continues to improve. Yeah, and my hope would be that it then becomes a team that understands that different players are going to play based yep. on different opposition. Exactly. And if you're playing against a team that you think is going to be ultra-defensive, maybe it's Reina starting in midfield exactly. instead of Musa because yep. he's going to try to facilitate more. If you're playing a stronger team, maybe you want somebody more defensive. And I think that is the next evolution of the team I would like to see is being able to sort of adapt your style and your approach to suit your opponent and uh, like minimize your vulnerabilities while increasing your strengths. Uh, speaking of strengths, the U.S. scored some goals. We're going to talk about that in just a moment, as well as some more individual performances. Uh, first, a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back, Joe. When you were summarizing the U.S.'s attack earlier, I think you said it pretty well, that it didn't seem like the U.S. clicked on attack right away. And I do think... Pulisic starting to kind of find his form, take people on, back himself. He has that initial yeah. one where he he drives. He has the low cross that's cut out. Uh, he's aiming for Balogun there. Yep. But that seemed to be the the start of the United States feeling like, oh, create some overloads out wide on the left side if Jedi overlaps and Pulisic is there and then he's got some support from an attacker or a midfielder, we can, we can sort of tear them apart. And then certainly on Mexico's left side, the U.S. is right. The combination of uh, Reyna... And Wea and Dest just consistently opened up Mexico and made them have to kind of problem solve 
on the fly pretty quickly. And it felt like as soon as Mexico solved one thing or had a little bit of a solution, it opened up opportunities elsewhere. Uh, leading up to that goal, it did seem like the United States were finding their footing, but that was in like the 20th minute. They don't score until what, the 38th or so. So there's a time period when the United States looking good, but not scoring. Uh, what were the kind of key moments for you in the U.S. finding their footing in the attack? Yeah, I thought it was a lot of Christian Pulisic in this game, to be honest. And and you talked through some of that stuff really well, Taylor. Like, he, he started to become this version of Christian Pulisic that we know exists. But at this point, I'll be honest, I don't really ever expect to see because it feels like we see a, a much more tame, touch-heavy version of Christian Pulisic more often than yep. not, right? Like, it mm-hmm. feels like we see the, the not ball hog Christian Pulisic, but just the a little bit slow, a little bit... Uh, excessive in, in how long he's taking on the ball. That was the case here and there in this game, but it, it wasn't often in this match. Like, he was direct, he was incisive. And the real issue for Polisic, which is, I think, a better issue to have, to be honest, is the final ball wasn't always there, but the final ball is not always going to be there, right? You mentioned the one that gets cut out looking for Balogun. I think that was in the 22nd minute. Uh, like, that happens the 23rd minute. He gets into the box after Balogun holds the ball up and then misses the mm-hmm. shot right after dusting. I think it's Edson Alvarez at some point in that sequence. That was a phenomenal bit of play from the U.S. And Balogun deserves a ton of credit for opening that up. Like the hold up play on the on the far sideline that was on the left wing for the U.S. Like that was just beautiful work from yep. Balogun to hold the ball up and then play Pulisic in behind. And you can make a real argument that Pulisic should have squared it to Balogun in that moment because I think he was looking for it and probably had the better angle. But Pulisic, you know, still turns that sequence into something. 25th minute, great burst in the midfield. Like it was Pulisic wearing this team down over and over again. Balogun hanging in there. Tim Weah and, and Des combining and, and Reina getting involved on that side too. And finally, then you get to the 37th or 38th minute. The U.S. are in possession. Mexico have been penned in, you know, for, for large stretches of the match to this point. And they work the ball around, right? They get the ball into zone 14. And it doesn't come off of like this crazy, beautiful sequence ultimately when they get around the box. Like it's a little bit of dancing, a little bit of a, a fortunate bounce. But then Christian Pulisic, once again, pounces on the ball. And, and this is, Taylor, this is the best version of Christian Pulisic, right? It's not the one that's taking six extra touches in midfield just to play the ball backwards or to run into a defender. It's mm-hmm. the quick, incisive, like opportunistic Christian Pulisic. And, and you see the opportunistic part especially hard on this goal. And you see the direct, aggressive part on the second goal. And, and I'll let you walk through some of that in a second. But like, he was just so quick and sharp and decisive. I, I don't think Mexico had any individual defender or even their defensive shape that could handle that version of Pulisic with all of the other talent around him in this lineup. Yeah, uh, agreed entirely. I think Pulisic at times seems to want to like hold up and engage 1v1, yep. almost like it's like a, a street ball sort of game. And and that's where I get frustrated because that is where it feels like it's slowing things down unnecessarily. In this game, I felt like he did have some of those dribbles, but they were definitely with intent, with purpose. There's the the cross that's cut out. There's that shooting opportunity. I, I also want to pause there to note that when he does put it over and doesn't lay it off to Balogun, I was very much paying attention to body language. And as he's laying face down, it's Balogun who kind of rolls him over and helps him sit back up. And it's like, hey, man, it's good. Wea comes over and it's like, hey, man, it's good. And I thought that was a nice moment of just like teammates mm. not being annoyed that he didn't pass them the ball, but instead picking him up continuing the momentum on and yeah then you look at the way that goal happens it's the u.s i think like definitely it's a scramble it's a lot of loose balls and loose passes and and then it's a miscontrol and then pool stick is on it but it's also the united states sort of 
creating that chaos a little bit. There's good control. There's good tight touches. Even when they lose the ball, they fight really hard to put Mexico under pressure, and it keeps that kind of uh, pinball aspect of the goal alive, and then Pulisic finishes well. So there's opportunistic finishing. There's kind of putting the pressure on Mexico and making them make a mistake that leads to the first goal. For the second goal, I think this is just comprehensively an excellent goal from start to finish. Goss and I ran through the ball from McKinney, the touch from Wea, the ball in from Wea, the goal from Pulisic, and the run he makes. But it starts with the United States putting Mexico under sustained pressure. They can't really find anything, and they end up having to just try a long ball. Miles Robinson wins it. And unlike some of the headers that the United States won, where it's just, I'm heading this clear into touch or back uh, towards Mexico, Robinson heads it really well in the direction of Wea, who has a man mm. on his back. Wea brings it down with his chest, lays it off the desk, and then it's a good passing sequence in which the U.S. moves the ball from the right side to the middle, to the left side, back to the middle, back to Matt Turner, out to the right. Then yep. Dest has that run a little bit, like not even a run, just a few touches. But the ball he plays in for McKinney is more difficult than it looks because there's a defender between them, but it's he hits it Dest perfectly in the right spot that the defender has to try to get to it, isn't going to be able to get to it. But if he hits that six inches or a foot to the right of where he does, it's intercepted, and now the United States is in trouble. And that's, I think, the gamble that the United States will take when they're feeling confident, when they're up one nil and feeling like we can make something happen here. And then the way McKinney receives the ball takes it towards the touchline, but mm. knows exactly where he wants to play that ball. You can see him checking his shoulder in the buildup and sees Wea is in isolation there and I think is just desperately trying to put himself in a position to play that ball. I said in the review that David got with David Goss that that was a moment of the ball having eyes because the way he threads that, where he hits it, is so perfect that it reaches Tim Wea in stride. Wea then has a beautiful first touch across the defender, but still at speed, it takes him into the box. So now the defender can't make contact or it's going to be a penalty. Uh, but then Wea has set himself up perfectly for an inch perfect pass that keeps Ochoa on his line because he can't get to it, but it bends around that defender. Pulisic is there for the finish and it's the United States winning the ball back from pressure, but then keeping possession instead of just giving it away, moving the ball until they're able to kind of pull Mexico apart and open them up and then pouncing really efficiently. I love that goal from start to finish. Yeah, it was a beautiful attacking sequence. After the game, Faloran Balogun said, like, I didn't know Tim Way was that fast. Like, it was, <laughs> it really was way of bursting down the wing and all of the clever buildup before that and, and a beautiful ball from McKenney. Everything just came together so perfectly in that moment. And it was a reminder of how fun this team can be, right? A reminder of how dangerous this team can be. Mexico didn't cover themselves in glory at any time mm -mm. in this game. But no. I mean, credit to the U.S., right? This is, this is absolutely what you have to do when, you know, you're, you're taking it to someone, but you need to add that extra little bit at the end. And the U.S.'s front three did that well. I also liked Taylor. I liked how. The front three, the profile of all the players in the front three seemed to fit yeah. together, right? Um, it, it wasn't Florin Balogun's best game. Like, he's had much better games in Liga this year, and, and maybe we'll get to him a little bit more later on. We can get like, to him now if you want. Okay, all right, I'm we'll, we'll get to him now, right? I mean, Balogun had a, a lot of success holding the ball up in this game, which is not really, like, the, the number one thing he's known for. Agreed. But Agreed. he is... He is a well-rounded attacker. And, and I was mm -hmm. chatting with Chris Richards as we talked a little bit on the Patreon earlier this week. No I was deal. chatting with no Chris Richards deal. and I asked him, just like, what makes up. this guy just so special? Yeah, you just see R and I, you know, like we're <laughs> yeah. obviously super tight at this point after one conversation. <laughs> of course, um, of course. And, and, you know, Richards talked about this guy's well-rounded. Like he can beat you in a lot of different ways. He's not predictable. 
Um, Richards also said that Balogun hadn't scored on him in training. Uh, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, because he also mentioned like there's no footage, which seems like the kind of thing that someone who has been scored <laughs> on in training would point out um, just to Agreed. cover their tracks. So <laughs> anyway, Balogun's well-rounded. So it, it, hold-up play is one part of a, a much wider range of skills, but the hold-up play was on display here. And Balogun consistently brought others into the game, drew fouls, pulled center backs out, which is exactly what we talked about in the build-up to this game. And it was Christian Pulisic darting in behind. It was Tim Weah from the jump. The opening kickoff play for the U.S. was a play to set up Weah to run in behind. And it didn't work, but it was fun, right? And it kind of set the mm-hmm. tone for Weah's night. Like, the profile seemed to work well. And the one thing that I kind of thought was missing was a, a little bit of linking from midfield, right? Balogun only had 17 touches in this game through 75 minutes. He only had one shot. Balogun did a lot of the dirty work for others, which is great. Yep. And that's kind of all he needed to do in this game. But going forward, if, if the U.S. wants to continue to try to get him more involved... I, I think either Christian Pulisic has to be a little more active coming inside to then find Balogun running in behind, yeah. or I mentioned earlier Gio Reyna to loop him into this discussion to get my thoughts out on him. I thought Reyna did a, a ton of good defensive work, which is not really something I expect to see from Gio Reyna, to be totally honest. like He was fairly active, fairly mm-hmm. engaged, not perfect, but playing as a straight-up number eight for a lot of this game in a 4-3-3, he did a good job. Like He helped the U.S. control the field, which was my concern. What I, I don't think he did so much was get crazy involved in the attack. Like, for my money, Gio Reyna is the most talented player on the field for the U.S. whenever he's on the field for the U.S. He's the guy you want on the ball in tight spots. He's the guy you want on the ball in the final third to find the striker or to create a chance. And we didn't see a ton of that stuff. So that's like the, the little asterisks on Reyna. And I think that impacted Balogun. It had, you know, other impacts throughout this team. But by and large, I thought the front three fit well together. And it laid a really good foundation and was promising for the first time that we've seen this group play together with Balogun up top. That's a really interesting point because I think it shows some of – not a problem, but some of the kind of push and pull of the way the U.S. wants to play. Because talking about that right side overload for a minute, uh, we've seen Weston McKinney do this role before for the United States. I think Gio Reyna did it really well last night of of moving wide to create sort of like uh, one-two or uh, wall pass options mm-hmm. for Tim Weah. But then if he would go wide Reyna and then he, if he was trying to play in Weah, I feel like Dest would then make the underlap and try to be central. And at that point, I think the system requires Reyna to stay a little bit deeper because if Dest is committed and Weah is committed, that whole side is pretty wide open. And I think Reyna then can't sort of bomb forward into the middle, which is what I'm guessing he wants to do. But at the same time, I think you're dead on, Joe, that that leaves Balogun sort of back to goal, like uh, on the last defender. It Pulisic maybe a little bit wider, even if he does move more central if the ball's on the right. It's still not a ton to combine with. Yeah. McKenney can kind of shift over more centrally, but that's still just the one player there. So I think that's a really interesting thing that when the U.S. system is working, it does kind of leave that forward isolated. Yeah. I think maybe that's where Goss was talking about how he'd like to see Balogun's near post runs be a little bit sharper because I think that's what that is targeting is quick pass down the line, way up pings a ball in, somebody's at the near post for either a shot or a little flick. And I think Balogun for the most part, did what he could. I, yeah, uh, we talked agreed. somewhat critically about his runs on the on the hot take. And I uh, Balogun is a player that I'm more positive on after the rewatch. Maybe some of that is because I want to be more positive on mm. him because I'm excited about him. I'll own that right away. But your point about his hold-up play and the flick in for Pulisic, I think is a great one. A couple other times, he is back to goal holding the ball up. I think two more times he draws fouls. Obviously, he works back very aggressively 30, 40 yards to win the ball that leads to the first red card because it's just frustration because he's hustling. But even little things like his run uh, for the second goal, 
Goss and I, I wasn't sure where he was in, in the buildup for that one. I wasn't sure if he had sort of checked two or tried to open up space. And it's basically when that ball is played into Wea, he's a little bit behind where Tim Wea is. He turns immediately and, and is on his horse, and he's trying to pay attention to what Wea is doing while making his run. And when he picks his head up and sees that Pulisic is making that run in from the left towards the middle, towards the back post, he adjusts his run instantly and takes the defender away and tries to get that to that near post in case the ball comes in there. And I just think... There's an alertness there. There's an awareness of how he needs to adjust his run, how he needs to adjust his positioning. But there's a willingness to fight for those 50-50s with his back to goal. There's a willingness to just try to make things happen. I would like to see him, yeah, just more involved, more players around him for some quick passing sequences. But I think overall, I liked what I saw from Balogun enough that I want to see more of it. Yeah, agreed. And I think his profile fits well for a game like this where the U.S. ended up being the team in control much more and, and you know he's also done well in transition for Reims this year like they they ended up playing a lot against the ball so we can slash him behind but of the two strikers in this camp Balogun and Ricardo Pepe Balogun is the one I want trying to bring others into the game he's the one I want with his back to goal playing that really clever I think it was a left-footed ball it ended up being to Christian Pulisic in behind yep. the back line like he is the pick maybe he's not a perfect pick but he is the pick to do the job against a, a slightly more compact opponent which is why I, w- I would start him on Sunday uh, and mm-hmm. I think that's where you guys landed in the in the yep. quick take hot take that's that's the case and then it worked well bringing Pepe off the bench right yes, because there's a little bit more space in behind the game is a little bit more open it's gotten crazy at that point like the U.S. is down to 10 men Weston McKinney's not on the field and, and he comes on for Balogun, I think, in the 75th minute and slashes him behind. There's a little bit more space. Mexico are desperate. Uh, Pepe knows that and, and finds the space really well. Like, it just worked in a lot of ways in this game. It just worked. And for Balogun, one more thought on him. I I agree that all of the runs and the service weren't matching up, right? Because mm-hmm. Balogun didn't get a lot of touches. He wasn't super dangerous in the box because he wasn't really getting on the ball in the box. But I think if, if folks care enough to go back and watch it, or maybe they just want to take a word for it, I think they will see a lot of clever movement from Balogun. Taylor, you detail the, the, the run on the goal that Pulisic scores right after halftime. There were other moments where he's spinning off a defender and running him behind, and, and the pass goes a different direction. Like maybe it goes to just another player straight up and isn't even tried to play into Balogun. Or maybe it's Tim Weah not fully connecting or Christian Pulisic not fully connecting or not playing the pass. I think Balogun found good spots, and that's kind of the striker he is, right? He is a little opportunistic, like he's he's hunting for space in the box, and he can bring others into the game too. But I think we'll see games where Balogun, you know, isn't incredibly involved and influential, and he's making life easier for those around him. And I think in turn, we'll see games where the script is flipped, and he's much more involved and is putting the ball in the back of the net. I have one more thing I want to say about Balogun. Yeah. First, I want to stick with Ricardo Pepe for a second, because obviously he gets the third goal. I do think is somewhat fortunate. Uh, it's a great driving run it from is. Dest. It's it very is. much a Musa maneuver. Uh, and I think it's also that he has uh, players on him. I thought for a moment it was players who were already on a yellow, but I don't think it was. I think it was uh, Jonathan Herrera and Santi Jimenez who were both kind of pursuing him. Maybe it was just Herrera, but uh, they aren't able to keep up with him. And I think they know that it's going to be have to be an aggressive foul on a yellow card, so they can't really make a play. And... He just kind of coasts on through Dest and finds uh, Pepe in space. And then I believe it is Reyes who does that really unfortunate thing that defenders sometimes do of trying to step to catch the attacker offside, but steps at precisely the wrong moment. Mm. So he steps 
just as the ball is being played so that when the ball is kicked, he is maybe two yards deeper. And then by the time the ball has left the foot, he is two yards further up. But now Pepe is in space and on side. Uh, so maybe a little bit fortunate there, Ricardo Pepe, with that play from Reyes. Where he was not fortunate but was instead just very skillful is the way he goes about setting himself up to score this because I think it is a touch to receive, a touch to create some separation, one more touch, and that is where uh, Ochoa has come off his line. He's cut down the angle, and it's one more touch, and then Ochoa is thinking, okay, he's definitely going to shoot here, and you can see Ochoa start to set up to kind of cover low but have his hands in position to cover any sort of medium shots, and then Pepe takes another touch, and that is where Ochoa basically falls over because he's so certain of what Pepe's going to do, and that little unexpected touch is what makes Ochoa fall over. It's what opens up that near post, and it's how Pepe's able to finish perfectly, mm. uh, or rather he finishes perfectly because that gap is opened up. But that's a striker's awareness. That is a ability to process what the goalkeeper's doing, what the space looks like, how to open up more space, and then how to finish well. I don't know if that's a thing we saw from Pepe at times in the past, I have to believe a lot of that is him finding some goal-scoring form and and getting a little bit of hype. And so, Joe, what I come back to is uh, when we did our USMNT draft, you obviously took Balogun, I took Pepe, and now Pepe has scored, so I Ooh, think I win. I, Taylor, you know what? I'm willing to concede this to you. I also took John Brooks, and, and honestly, who knows what's going on with that, so I'm still down a player, ultimately. Um, so, Taylor, I, I think you've earned this one. <laughs> Although, now I've come fully around on Reyna, so who knows? You had him. Uh, let's take one more break, and then we'll talk about the the chaos of this match, and then the chaos off the pitch with Greg Berhalter. Coming back. We'll see what happens. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Joe Lowry, uh, we had four red cards in this game. 
I think all of them, eh, three of them definitely deserved. Uh, Goss and I talked through a few of these at length. But before we get to the red card, I want to start with where I think this, this match, the control was lost by the officiating crew. I think it was chippy at times in the first half. I think there was some afters. There's a moment, uh, I have it in my notes, I'll try to find it, uh, when Dest uh, picks up the ball in the, in the second half and... Like, it's basically an overhit ball from Mexico, I think, off of a corner. Des chases it down. He has, I think, Gallardo on him. Uh, and he kind of seems like he's going to let it go out for a goal kick and then turns really quickly and goes mm. up the pitch. And now is wide open. He plays the ball up. And the defender, after the ball is gone, just steps straight into him. And, and like, it's, it's definitely a block. The defender knows exactly what he's doing. But the ball is gone. I think the ref didn't see it. So play continues. But we see it start to get chippier and chippier. And where it really, to me, boiled over watching it again is Antuna just crushing Gio Reyna. And whether or not he fully intended it to do it, Antuna, I think is the difference between a yellow card and a red card. But if you look at the kind of definition of a yellow card, it's it's reckless. It's basically putting in a reckless tackle that uh, can... Is like you're out of control such that you're not able to prevent that sort of collision from occurring, even if he doesn't mean to. It's a reckless challenge. Blood is drawn, which definitely makes it look worse. But I absolutely think that should have been a yellow card. I also think that should have been a yellow card for the way the game had been officiated uh, until that point hmm. that the ref called stuff, let stuff go. Uh, from a card perspective, but did sort of keep, I think, a tight, tight rein on things the best he could. And that was definitely a moment when the way it had been called up to that point, that should have been a yellow card. And I think uh, we had Christine Uncle and, and the CBS coverage sort of try to explain uh, and basically ended up saying it, it is enough to be a yellow card. I think because the player's already on a yellow, the ref doesn't want to give it. Not that that lets him off the hook, but I think it would have been justified for a yellow, but I can see why maybe he didn't give that yellow. And to me, all that says is it should have been a yellow, but he didn't want to send somebody off for fear of what could happen. And I understand that. But <laughs> right. what, what happens then from a gameplay perspective, to my understanding at least, is that now, up to that point, if you know how it's been called, you know how it's been officiated, you kind of have an idea what you're going to be able to get away with before you're booked – now that's out the window a little bit because that should have been a card and it wasn't. And then I think you have a U.S. player getting a card two minutes later for a very innocuous challenge. And now it starts to feel uneven and it starts to feel sort of disproportionate to what's being called and how it's being called. And I think from that moment on, you start to get players, especially on, I would say entirely on Mexico's side. I'm trying not to be biased here, but I don't think this is biased. I think it's just a statement of fact. I think you start to see them testing more. Of what can I get away with? There's a little kick here. There's a little push out here. Uh, and, and maybe even Balogun. Maybe Balogun should have gotten a yellow for the contact uh, he had on Montez when Montez goes down after the ball is gone. But I just think that's where it started to be sort of erratic in the way it was officiated. Could you get that sense in the stadium? Could you see that things were ratcheting up and that yes, things were getting looser? Okay. Very much so. Is the moment, the first moment you're describing with Gio Reyna and Antuna, is that the one where he gets up? Or wait, is that the header one where the header. heads collide? Okay. Yeah. Because there's also one in the second half where Gio Reyna gets tackled hard. Uh, and it's a free kick sort of in the attacking half for the U.S. And he gets up and waves the And crowd. he gets up, yeah. So, yep. so, okay, so 57th minute is when Antuna goes in. It's a 50-50 ball. Rain is tracking it. Antuna, right. I should stress this, is tracking the ball and then I think sees Reyna. Yeah. And at that point is it's no longer collision. looking at the ball. It's a bad collision. Exactly. Reyna then gets treatment, is bleeding, walks off. We talked about this in the, uh, in the quick take that he walks off. And as you see him walking down the touchline, you can see him say, hey, ref, hey, ref, good call. Good call with a big thumbs up. And then he, he stands next to the fourth official. He's drinking water. And you can see him just going like, okay, 
okay, that's what we're doing. Okay, like you can see and like, all right, this is how it's going to be. From that restart, uh, the U.S. play long. Reyna comes running back onto the pitch. It's a 50-50 ball. It falls to him. He takes somebody on, yep. gets fouled, and yep. there's a yellow card, and that's when is. he picks him up. But yeah, there's there's two fouls on Reyna in two minutes, both of which should have been yellow cards, only one of which was. It, in the immortal words of Matt Turner through Aaron Ramsdale, it was, in fact, a dogfight out there, dog. Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> it, it really was. And, and you definitely got that sense being in the stadium as things went on. The crowd was already... Irritated and angry because Mexico fans are just angry at everything right now mm-hmm. because their team's not very good. And it started to get more and more feisty on the field. And all of these things very much felt like they were leading up to something. Yeah. And I thought the something was going to be the the big scrum, right? The Weston McKenney yep. viral gift scrum. It turned mm-hmm. out that that really wasn't the last sort of story in this book nope. of many stories. But that was that was like the moment where it's like, okay, this is yeah. approaching 2021 Nations League final levels of chaos where it's Florin Balogun gets tackled behind by Cesar Montes. It is a, a bad challenge. The referee immediately goes to his back pocket. He calls a red card. Then there's mm-hmm. like the little scrum that ensues and Weston McKinney's right in the middle of it. And he's kind of surrounded by Mexico players. His jersey gets ripped. It is hard to tell what exactly Weston McKinney did explicitly wrong. Now, his hands are moving like he, he's trying to push people away. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was more than that. I talked to some folks after the game, uh, some U.S. soccer people that that thought maybe like there had been a little bit more than that. And, and so maybe from different angles, it was it was easier or harder to see. I don't know. From what yeah. I was sitting, it was extremely difficult to see what McKenney did wrong. Not that there wasn't anything, but I could see a crowd of green and Weston McKenney with a ripped jersey. But then the best part, I think the best part of this whole game is, oh, is the gift of, of Weston McKenney kissing. It looks like the badge of a ripped jersey that looks like a toga yep. blowing yep. kisses to Mexico fans or to Mexico's bench, whatever it was. And then also we find out that he gets a red card like right after that, which was a real bummer. Like that was a real buzzkill, but it was also just an incredible moment. Yeah, while stuff is being thrown at him, no less, which is why I think he continues to kiss the badge. Uh, I was very disappointed that he ends up getting that red. I think there are two possible moments for why he gets the red. And I think one of them, based on the way this game was officiated, is more justified than the other. The one that I initially thought it was is after there's the scrum. Uh, I, I think it's uh, Sanchez comes over and gets in his face. Mm. And as he's in McKinney's face, it's very subtle. You can see it from one angle. Sanchez pulls McKinney's jersey and does not let go. And that's where the jersey gets ripped is because he pulls McKinney towards him. Then as he's doing that, uh, Sanchez leans in and touches head to head. Goss and I talked about this. He is absolutely trying to do the thing where he leans in. And then when McKinney kind of steps to him, he falls over and acts like he's been headbutted. And there's your red card. That doesn't happen, but what McKinney does do is sort of push him away by pushing his neck, and that, I think, is where maybe there's an argument for the red card of hands to the face, hands to the neck. At that point, McKinney is also surrounded by four players, and I think I I feel like that's that's pretty harsh if that's what the red is for. Mm -hmm. The other possibility, and I think Goss was pointing this out, is that after that kick out from Montez, as he is sort of walking away and, and... Things are still very high. Tensions are still very much escalated. McKinney, I think, is the one who comes in and pushes Montez in the back. And that's what starts the whole Montez Mm. turns around. Players come rushing over. Everybody's there. And I only say that's justified because that is what Arteaga is red carded for later on, is for the push in the back on Dest. That is what gets him that red. And so if you're giving one player a red for pushing somebody in the back, I can see why you have to give another player, even if the McKinney one comes first. At least there's that parallel there. 
Uh, but I still don't really have a problem with it because I think it's McKinney coming over and not backing down from Mexico getting physical. I think he's he's got that dog in him too. He's ready for a scrap. And then I think the way it goes, I'm still really annoyed that at the very least, Sanchez isn't also sent off. He rips the jersey. He's going head-to-head. He's definitely engaging pretty violently. And that was one of many incidents with Sanchez where he has words, where he's getting in people's faces, where there's little kicks. And and I think if you're going to give McKinney a red, that has to be a red to Sanchez too. Again, I think the official not really having the control he needed. Um, and a few other little moments in there. Basically from that uh, Antuna collision, it's uh, a foul on uh, for Antuna uh, fouling Reyna. Then it's Reyna getting fouled again. Then in the 63rd, it's a yellow to Miles Robinson for going up and winning a header. Yep. But he has kind of his arms out. If you watch that replay, he's tracking the ball the whole way. He wins the, the header cleanly. There maybe is a little bit of forearm contact. At the same time, if that's a yellow, the Antuna one has to be a yellow. So there's that inconsistency. There's the frustration. And I do think the Montez one is just pure frustration. It's Balogun outworking him. In that moment, I think Montez feels like this has to have been a foul. Even though it wasn't, it's not fair. And then there's just the red mist in that kick. Uh, But I think from that moment on, it just felt like this game is going to be chaotic. And I hope we don't get more red cards. And yet we did. Uh, And and the Dest one, I think... Like, for everything we've said about McKinney, I kind of understand why he got involved, and I kind of think he's not as to blame as Dest is for his red card. I would add, Dest gets kicked and fouled. I already talked about the one off the ball that isn't called. There's so many fouls on Dest, so many little kicks, so many just little afters that I can see him getting frustrated, getting more and more annoyed. I also know that he was doing lots of little flicks and tricks, and more power to him. I love it. But I also have to believe that if you're L3 and you're already down Dos Aceto and now Tres Aceto, you're going to take issue with that. And yeah. you're going to want to to get after him a little bit. And that's exactly what happens. It's his former teammate, Efren Alvarez, bumping him after the play is done. Dest turns around and gives him a shove. And then Arteaga comes in, shoves Dest in the back. That bumps him into, into Alvarez. And I think that kind of is where things boil over because it's very quick. And I missed this uh, on the quick take, but Dest absolutely reaches out and slaps Artiaga in the face. And that's going to be a red card every single time. Yep. I think the official already had the red out for Artiaga, but maybe for both of them, Making it but easy. either way, yep. you've just further, you've just further justified that one. Uh, it, it still annoyed me, but I think like that ultimately is a fair red card. You can't hit somebody in the no. face, but it does make me sad because I thought otherwise this was, one of the best performances I've seen from Serginho Dest, if not the best performance I've seen from him in a U.S. shirt. Yeah, Dest was fantastic in this game up until this moment, which is understandable, but not excusable, right? Like, yeah. I can understand why Dest is is really irritated in this moment. He's getting shoved. He's been getting kicked all game long. Mexico's kind of over it at this point, understandably so. And, and so they get into some afters. You just, you can't do it, right? If you're Serginho Dest, you can't do it. You know that this is a semifinal. Like, you know that the next game is going to be against Canada, a legitimately good team, and you're not going to be competing in that game. Yeah. And and like the McKenney one, like you said, Taylor, I think it's it is more excusable because there's a giant old scrum. This one is kind of just Dest, right? Who can't control himself. And it's it's frustrating. It is it is disappointing. It puts the U.S. in a worse spot. Being without these players obviously does that. That's far from a hot take. That's why I guess I wasn't on the quick take hot take yesterday. But like this is this is brutal for the U.S. And, and Christian Pulisic said it after the game, like. It was a good performance, but he said just straight up, 
I'm disappointed like that some of the guys yeah. couldn't keep their heads better. And that's very clearly going right to Sergio Dest. Hopefully this is a learning experience because that's the only thing you can do at this point is learn and, and try to control yourself better the next time. But, you know, we're talking about how this was the game to win and, and this was fun. You know, the U.S. should still want to go out and beat yeah. Canada, right? Like, oh, yeah. I think we'll get increasingly excited for that game. As time goes on, it just still feels like now everything's USA Mexico swirling around in my head yep. and Baralter stuff, and, and the Canada game feels yeah. like a year away, but it's not. It's two days away, and everybody's going to start to feel it more, and everybody's going to start to get real irritated that Canada are as good as they are, and it's going to start to be very annoying for USMNT fans, and mm-hmm. that's going to start to become more and more of a rivalry every single time that they play between now and 2026, and the fact that you're missing two of your your better starters for that match Definitely puts you behind the eight ball a little bit. Um, it was it, until I couldn't even see like any of this stuff. So the press box was on the opposite side of the field. Mm-hmm. I'm also like trying to type stuff up and take notes of and whatever. Course. And there's a lot yeah, going yeah. on as, as the the final minutes kind of tick by. I, I I had no clue what was going on in this moment. I saw a little scrum, didn't understand what was going on. It it was just a, a totally bizarre, crazy everything as this game finished up. And it gets more bizarre from there. We will talk about the Canada game and Berhalter. Uh, first, we should talk about how this one finished or didn't finish uh, because we, we we start to hear the chant. I would argue we heard the chant first in half. the first half. Yep. That was not penalized at all. We finally start getting the uh, the protocols sort of followed. Uh, the referee stops the match in the 90th minute when the, when the chant reemerges. But, Joe, it was happening throughout the game. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it happened a lot. Like, I think it happened on every single time Matt Turner went long, like not even mm-hmm. goal kicks. Um, I, I, honestly, like it, it was it was a pretty constant theme. And John Arnold, I think, tweeted this out. Like Mexico fans are angry. And this is what Mexico fans do when they're angry because they're they're attempting. Well, I'm, I guess there are probably multiple different avenues and reasons behind this. But part of it is like they, they want to punish like their players and their federation. Right. And. It's it's just all so insane. Like it's don't hot another hot take for me, Taylor. I guess this is my first. Don't don't chant derogatory stuff. Like just yep. don't like I don't. It's nope. it's it is a little ridiculous that we still have to talk about you know people yelling stuff like that. I I don't know. It's it's yeah. all absurd and it was all throughout this game and the referee couldn't really control it and the game ended in a really weird way. Like Concacaf has protocol for this and. They didn't follow like any of it. Maybe they followed the first step, which is sort of pause the game and, and announce it over the PA. They skipped the second step entirely, and the third step is abandon the game, which CONCACAF says is not what happened, despite the fact that the game was that ended was early. Yeah, yeah, like they, they just said the referee decided to finish the game and, and just call it done, which is, you know what, fair enough. Like it's 3-0 at that point, 12 minutes of stoppage time. Like let's just call it good and call it a night. I get that, but it, it was... How it was handled was very, very poor. The referee could not control things. Mexico fans obviously conducted themselves poorly. Mm-hmm. Just absurd all the way around on that side. I also think because the referee skips the second step and then ends the game, but not because of the like the third step, but because it was out of control, so he ended it prematurely, there's also, for me, a feeling that you then, if you're CONCACAF, don't technically have to punish them to the full severity because, well, it wasn't... Uh, abandoned because of it the referee just ended the game prematurely mm. which is is splitting hairs with the finest possible blade you can uh and, and so to me it's it's CONCACAF not really enforcing it until the game is done and until they can sort of 
not have to take really decisive action in the first half or in the 50th minute or whatever, it allows them to kind of kick that can down to a point when, okay, it's 3-0, it's the 95th minute, whatever, let's just call it. And and I think if you're trying to say we're stamping it out and we're taking it very seriously, lest we forget, Mexico will be one of the hosts in 2026. I think to kind of avoid any sort of action thus far and to have a lot of different conflicting statements and a lot of different interpretations does not help with the idea that we're stamping it out and we're taking this very seriously. So I, I think that's another pretty sizable blemish on this game, though that is very much from an L3 perspective, not from a U.S. perspective, right. but a, a a a surreal and very frustrating way to end this game, but still... The U.S. with an emphatic win. That was equally crazy. Uh, Joe, let's talk about that Canada game for a moment. Goss and I had a few lengthy conversations about what we wanted to see the United States do. I think Dest is out. It's it's pretty clear that it will be Joe Scally at right back in my mind. But with no Weston McKinney, what would you like to see them do? The two very obvious solutions would be either Johnny comes in and plays more as that conventional number six, or maybe Luca De La Torre starts in place of Weston McKinney and is basically just Weston McKinney's understudy. That's what I would do. I would put Luca De La Torre in. I think it's a, a massive loss for the U.S. Like the difference in mobility, the difference in strength, ball winning, field control that you lose from McKinney to De La Torre, it seems anyway, is is large. And you're going to miss a lot of what McKinney does on the attacking side as well. So it, there's no perfect solution here. But I would keep Musa in his role, I think. I, I, I don't really love any of these options. But I would keep Musa in that number six role I guess keep Reina in the midfield because I thought there were some promising elements, and, and we talked about that earlier, even with room to improve. And I will put De La Torre in there, keep the shape mostly the same. I, I won't lie, I'm concerned about Canada on the break with that midfield trio. Mm-hmm. Like, very concerned about that. I think that, that could be a, a, the U.S.'s can go, undoing. Go, can you go into that a little bit more from what you saw from them against Panama and then obviously what sure. we've seen previously? What would you say are their main strengths? What would you say are maybe the opportunities for the United States? Let's start with the strengths. Yeah, I think their biggest strength is attack. Well, okay, let me back up. Their biggest strength is Alfonso Davies, who didn't start <laughs> uh, yesterday. And true, I think, very I don't, true. I don't know if he's going to start on Sunday, but you know, you'd have to imagine if you're going to start him in one of these two games, you're going to start him in the final, right? So I, I think the U.S. obviously has to game plan for him as much as you can game plan for the best player in this region by a fairly wide margin. Uh, that is their biggest strength, and he is lethal in, in every phase of the game, especially in the attacking side. The other thing on a team-wide level, though, for Canada is they're really good in transition. Like, they're they're direct. Jonathan David's a super well-rounded number nine. He scored a great goal against Panama in the first half. They have quality in midfield. Like, whoever starts in those spots, there's almost always at least one kind of direct box-to-box presence. It was Ismail Kone against Panama. It could be Osorio. I mean, there's a few different options there. But then they they also have some quality in possession. I don't think that's as good of a of a situation for them as some of the transition attacking, but... Kamal Miller can play great passes, bent little passes with his left foot on the left side of a back three. You know, the number nines can drop in. Stefan Estacchio and and Vittoria in the midfield and back line, respectively, are class on the ball. So Canada's straight up just a good team. You know, they didn't show it at the World Cup, but I I think they are much better than they performed in Qatar. They, they They don't feel like they have to dominate the ball. They're willing to be somewhat flexible, which always makes it irritating to play against them in a lot of different ways. You know, dealing with them in transition, dealing with Alfonso Davies, maybe tucking inside or, or trying to give cover to Joe Scally as he deals with Davies, doing that with Musa, De La Torre, and Reina as your three central midfielders is just so much of a taller task than doing it with even two-thirds of the MMA trio. I, yeah. I am genuinely concerned about how that will go for the U.S. 
All right, so that would be the negative side of things. On a more positive note, did you see any potential opportunities for the United States, either from what you saw from the U.S. or more specifically what you saw from Canada? Yeah, I think similar to, to Mexico, if you can pull out the outside center backs for Canada and, and try to take advantage of those gaps because they do play out of a back five defensively most of the time, I think there can be real opportunities there. Kamal Miller is an athletic defender. He likes to to move and to get forward and to shift wide. If you can try to overload those channels, I think you can have some success. And then I mentioned Estacchio and, and Vittoria. Those two players are, are good on the ball. They're not the most mobile, though. That's the distinction. So the U.S. could have some success driving at those players, going at them 1v1, trying to create opportunities. You know, j- just as the U.S. will be scared of Canada in terms of how they'll control Canada with, with the U.S.'s midfield, Canada should be concerned as well, right? You know, the U.S. has quality. They have wingers who can be a little bit narrower at times. They have Giorena in midfield, most likely. You know, Canada should be concerned about that as well, given that they mostly play with two central midfielders. So there are opportunities to overload and, and kind of pass around Canada in those spaces. But it should be a good game. Like, I, I'm pumped about this game. I think it is absolutely the final you wanted coming into this competition. It gives the U.S. a good game playing the same system that they've been playing and in the same system, generally speaking, on a tactical level, that it seems like they're going to continue to play. This will be a good rep and a good experience for the U.S. At least that's what I'm expecting. So that uh, Nations League final will be Sunday evening, 8.30 p.m. So hour and a half Bright early. early I appreciate man. that. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that, CONCACAF. Uh, that'll be on Paramount Plus and TUDNA. Uh, Joe, between now and then, are there any stories that maybe you'll be writing about or paying attention to? <sighs> man, so so much is going on right now. I had so many plans yesterday, Taylor, best uh-huh. laid plans. Uh, I had a lot of great ideas for what, you know, post this game coverage was going to look like. And then Paul hopped on his phone and did his, yep. his reporting thing. And it's now going to be at least something on backheel about Greg Berhalter uh, crazy. Like, this is all just so crazy. It feels a little ridiculous and absurd, but it, according to reports from Paul Tenorio and, and now a whole bunch of other folks, Pablo Maurer was in that initial report as well. Greg Berhalter is coming back, ladies and gentlemen, like it or not. It seems like he might be announced by the time people are listening to this. I'm not really sure what that timeline actually looks like, but that's what, what folks are saying. So, Taylor, this is, this is going to be a, a wild ride on Twitter, and it might be time to log off, actually, for a few days at some point in the near future. Uh, yeah, yeah. Based on the reactions and some of the hyperbolic rhetoric, I would say maybe don't pay so much attention. Uh, a few questions there, Joe. It's he is being likely to be named the the head coach again uh, in the next couple of days. I do not think he will be in charge of the team for that final. No. I think that seems pretty premature. But the reporting also seems to indicate that he won't be in charge until after the Gold Cup, which was which was what was initially said by U.S. Soccer that they would hire the GM. There'd be an interim manager until likely after the Gold Cup. Then a permanent manager would be appointed. So it seems as though they're sticking with that original timeline yeah. while naming Burhalter the coach. That seems uh, dumb to me. Pr- yeah. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Even if you don't like Greg Berhalter, even if you have concerns about him being brought back, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, it's still like if you're going to appoint a permanent manager, Just I don't do know it, why man. you then wait until after a tournament where we could use the experience and he could use some more uh, time to evolve his coaching style. Yeah, I don't get it at all. Like I, I, it's, It is dumb. I agree with you, Taylor. And the explanation that... Paul Tenorio, who was all over this story and who went on CBS on TV and, and walked people through it and did a fantastic job. Like, I don't think he was expecting to do any of that stuff last night. I know he wasn't expecting to do any of that stuff last night. Paul did a really, really good job in, in waiting through all this stuff. What Paul said was the thought from U.S. Soccer and Berhalter is, you know, don't coach the Gold Cup so you have time to work on more big picture stuff about the program leading towards 2026. That's the explanation. Uh, I'm sorry. What does a national team manager do between camps? 
Like, isn't that question? Isn't that like, isn't that the time to go and have like, if you want to go to the whiteboard and draw some cool Mikel Arteta pictures and think about where the program's going, do that stuff. Like, I'm not saying don't think about the future, but coaching in a Gold Cup and thinking about the future are not mutually exclusive things. (laughs) So, I I mean, I hope if Berlander comes back and it seems like that's going to happen and he takes the job, like, just have him coach the Gold Cup. Like, to not do that is a is a total waste, and it is frankly a little idiotic. The only thing I can think, like, because now I go straight to like, okay, what could be the explanation? And maybe there's something contractual. Maybe it's that it's obviously a a fairly weak roster for the United States at the Gold Cup. And if your Berhalter coming back, especially after the kind of recent run of games, you don't want to start off with like a young team not doing much in the Gold Cup and then it looking like it's your fault. I don't know. It doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Uh, I am not surprised, though, that Greg Berhalter has... uh, been brought back and will take back over the team. We should note, uh, we talked about this with Goss, that uh, he was not fired. His contract expired while the investigation was ongoing. The investigation is now concluded. So not uh, a big obstacle to be cleared there. Joe, I wasn't surprised to see him back, maybe surprised to see him back at this point with the way it came out. For you, what was your experience of learning this was happening and then processing that information while a game was ongoing? Yeah, it it felt... Oh, I don't know. I had this feeling, Taylor, and not from knowing anything, right? I think people know me well enough to know that I don't know people. Um, but like, I just had this feeling more and more news is coming out. Like Doug McIntyre mm-hmm. had a great report about U.S. soccer interviewing 10 plus candidates. And then ESPN mm-hmm. report that Patrick Vieira is legitimately interested. And those happened like back to back days or, or maybe a day in between. And then it, just being around the team, it felt like we were getting closer and closer to something happening. You know, being in the hotel when Matt Crocker is is arriving for the first time to meet some of these people, right? And he walks to the doors and it's like, this is just kind of weird, right? It feels like something is going on. And then I get to the stadium and Ron Waxman makes that tweet and then it feels like all the serious journalists kind of go what, into... What, what tweet are you referring to? Yes, I'm sorry. Good good call, Taylor. Ron Waxman is Jesse Marsh's agent and he tweeted out around 5.30 or so Las Vegas time. Um, Mountain Time for the win, by the way, on all this stuff. Fantastic work, Mountain Time. Um, he tweets out that Jesse Marsh, who is his client will not be the next USMNT manager. And that kind of just sent things into a a tizzy. Like you have folks tweeting that an announcement could be coming soon without naming anybody. And then shortly after that, we get the the story from The Athletic that it will be Greg Berhalter and that that could be announced within days. So it all happened really, really fast. And I kind of had this feeling that it was getting very close, maybe not as close as last night, but it felt like it was going to happen soon. Taylor, what I wrote after the game in in the piece that I did for Backyield is that it is an incredibly strange situation, but not an unexpected one, right? And I think I think that's where you fall on this, right? The general sense that I get is that U.S. soccer was very interested in bringing Greg Berhalter back after the yep. World Cup. They were interested in, in negotiating a new contract and all that stuff. Then the Reina Berhalter family drama comes out, right? And, and Berhalter's incident from 1992 is unearthed. Nobody publicly knew about that before. Nobody had said anything about it before. U.S. soccer, rightfully so, then has to go and do a, a detailed investigation into Greg Berhalter and into that incident and into his character. And things come back and the, the investigation finds that he is absolutely still in a position to be a candidate. He should be. That mm-hmm. that incident should not preclude him from being involved in the conversation. And then we wait. Right. We wait and nothing happens. And U.S. soccer in April finally hire a sporting director, which is always going to have to be the first step in hiring a, uh, a coach. But that took a, a long time. And then it took now, what, two more months to, to hire a manager. The underwhelming part in all of this, and this does feel underwhelming to me, Taylor, is that this stuff took a, a long time and that we always want something new and shiny. Right. We want something exciting. 
and, and straight up Baralther just isn't that, right? So that part feels underwhelming and, and the process that led him back feels silly, right? I, I'm not actually convinced and I've seen even people that I respect, like I don't want to toss Charlie Bohm under the bus here. I think he does a great job. He tweeted out that, you know, it feels like there's been a lot of wasted time here from December to now. And it's true. A lot of time has passed, but I'm not really sure that you've wasted any time. Ultimately, if you've decided to bring Baralter back, if you were going to bring another coach in, yeah, that would feel like some lost time because things would change. But things aren't really going to change under Baralter, at least at a macro level. Like you got Balogun. That was a huge thing. And the, the culture that Baralter helped create was a part of that. You got Balogun. Uh, you you continue to play the Berhalter way essentially. Like, what did you really miss here, other than Berhalter being around the team? I I don't really think that's a huge issue. That said, the process is still a little ridiculous. Um, but I, I don't think he's a bad option. Ultimately, I, I think we talked about this, uh, David and I. You and I have talked about this before. I think the and some of the discomfort I think with the CBS analyst last night is that I, I like this is a bad comparison to go with maybe, but to me, it's a little bit like when Joe Biden is the nominee against Donald Trump. Like, I I don't know how many people were like, Joe Biden's the man. I feel as energized as I did to vote for Barack Obama or whatever. But I think at the same time, it's a good enough option. And I feel like that's kind of what, what Greg Berhalter is. I think U S soccer feel like he, he ticked all the boxes. I'm going to assume there's a lot of strong relationships there. So to not bring him back, would have been like before the uh, the the allegations come out. Uh, I think would have required him to have obvious problems, either disconnect with the players or the locker room being unstable, or not getting the results. And I don't think any of that was enough to to really truly be a fireable offense. Uh, and then he's cleared in that investigation. But I think it comes down to he did good enough. He did about what was expected. Uh, if you want to be sort of like neutral on him i would say i think the way the players have talked about him most of the players at least it it says to me that there is buy-in that they like what they see from him uh i said this with goss that what i would hope is that we're getting an evolution and that there's a clear idea of what needs to be changed how we need to move forward yeah uh i would assume that the reina thing is done done and dusted and the scally thing is done and dusted maybe there need to be a few more conversations with scally i don't know but i would hope that now we're about moving forward and sort of taking those next steps, next steps in the program. Goss and I also talked about how long we would like that contract to be. Uh, I don't think we're going to get a ton of transparency about who was interviewed, what that process really was. I think we're going to get a timeline of, we had a bunch of candidates. We did some introductory interviews. We narrowed it down to 10. We did some more interviews. We had three finalists. And in the end, we went with Greg Berhalter. I think that's about as clear as it's going to be. We should get more clarity as to what that contract length is. Uh, I was initially on the four-year train. Uh, Goss talked me into maybe a a one-year extension at this point to see how he does through the Copa America and how the team evolves. Joe, I'm going to guess that you are more in that camp than the give until 2026 and see what happens. I think that would be ideal for U.S. soccer, certainly. I mean, regardless of what the contract is, you you can fire him, right? So you, you can still make changes. You're just going to be on the hook for paying him, right? So you can you can still have some flexibility in this situation. At least it seems to me that that's the case. But I like the idea of you saying, hey, you know, prove it, right? Let's let's see it. Let's see progress. Let's see it continue. Let's see some evolution, at least at a micro level. Let's see the attack improve. Let's see the final third patterns improve. Let's see how you integrate Balogun into the team. I, I don't think it's unreasonable to to keep the expectations high and say, you know, yeah. 2026 is going to be huge for us. We need to continue to grow. And I think that will probably happen, but we don't know for sure, right? So under Baralther, I think it's fair to 
to keep expectations lofty and, and make him live up to that. I also think the timing of that could be promising. Like this is a really lofty name, but Pep Guardiola's Manchester City contract reportedly expires in 2025. And if you cut ties with Berhalter, have a chance to and at least leave the door open, you know, maybe there is a better option out there. It doesn't seem like right now that any of the, the big boy European managers were interested, right? Pep Guardiola wasn't ever realistically connected. Nagelsmann, Klopp, Angel, I mean, all, Mourinho, like mm-hmm. th- this just always felt far-fetched. The names that really were linked, Jesse Marsh, Thierry Henry, Patrick Vieira, you know, are we actually sure that any of those are better coaches than Greg Berhalter? Like, uh, no, I think realistically with, with some logic, you would be able to say that that's not a guarantee, right? So I think Berhalter's a... I, f- I think I would, I would extend that too. I think if you are passionately making the argument that Patrick Vieira would have been a better coach or Jesse Marsh would have been a better coach or Steve Terundolo or whomever you want to argue about, I think that there is at least some I don't like Greg Berhalter yeah. to that argument because... I don't think you can look at that Crystal Palace team from this season and think, no, I see everything I wanted to see in this. Right, I would exactly. put myself in there, and I would say Pellegrino Matarazzo, a person that I advocated for. At the same time, I watched his teams struggle to create and struggle to play better than they should have with the talent they had. And I think there are deficiencies in his coaching style that have to be uh, addressed or improved upon. And I think that's the co- case with pretty much any manager that would have been a possibility or a realistic possibility to take over that gig. And so to me, it's a roll of the dice with a new coach coming in and what do they do with the existing team, with the existing approach, and how do they kind of get everybody on board really quickly. And maybe that works and we we move to a new level in our gameplay, but I think it's equally likely we stall and we have some of the same frustrations we had with Greg Berhalter. And so again, if if it ain't fully broke, if it ain't clearly broken take issue with that if you want i just i don't have nearly as much of an issue with perhalter being renewed especially if it is sort of with a let's see what you do over the next year i don't think that's going to be the case yeah. i think he probably is going to get through 2026 uh but i would like that just to kind of keep that squad lean and motivated for the copa america agreed ultimately i'm fine with this hire it's not flashy it's not exciting like it's it's a little underwhelming but mm-hmm. i I think it's fine. I think Berhalter, by the end of the cycle, had had shown more good than bad. I think it's reasonable to expect improvement. The culture seems to be good around the team. Players, big players seem to like him. Like, there's a a, a lot of positives. Again, I'm not totally sure he was the best candidate. Like, it's not obvious to me that Berhalter is is a no-brainer over Vieira or over Henri or over Marsh. Like, I'm I'm not sure about that. But I'm not sure that any of those other coaches are obviously better options either. So... I don't know. There, there's a lot of things still up in the air. As we've been talking, Taylor, it's been made official. Like this is happening. We'll see go. what this looks like going forward. Uh, I think, I think we're going to be in for quite the ride, at least in terms of Twitter discourse. I think you are correct, my friend. Uh, we've still got the Nations League final to be played. Joe and I will be back to review that one in detail. Uh, but for now, Joe Lowry, any other points you want to hit up on before we uh, we give you some time to collect your thoughts and not sit in a ball on the floor? Um, yeah, my, my legs are definitely growing a little tired and a little tingly. But ultimately, Taylor, my last thought is this is it's just fun to be excited about the U.S. again. Like Greg Berhalter being hired doesn't uh, doesn't stop that for me. Like this performance was fun. I'm growing more and more convinced that Mexico are, are kind of just really bad. And so the U.S. still has a lot of work to do. Like, I don't yeah. want to get that twisted. This was a good performance, but against a pretty mediocre kind of team. So I, but yeah. at the same time, I am excited. I'm excited for Sunday. I'm excited for what's coming and optimistic at this point about kind of where this team could go. I would I would agree with all of that. And I would add 
we've seen the United States play down to opponents when they're not playing well, when they're not playing quality, yeah. uh, and really limit their effectiveness as a result. We didn't see that last night, and that to me is uh, progress, is a very happy thing. And I would be even happier if Falorn Balogun uh, gets a hat trick against Canada. Retweet. And Joe feels all the more elated. Retweet. So, Joe Lowry, hopefully that happens. Thank you again, my friend, for taking the time to break this game down with me. Right back at you, Taylor. Uh, listeners, thank you for listening to uh, this episode and me talk about the USA versus Mexico for over two hours at this point. Uh, check out the chat Goss and I had last night. Thank you for listening to this one. Talk to you again soon. 